podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Red Inca, we're talking about a spectacularly bad year for pretty much everything, but they did still play cricket in it. Just. So I talked about the highs and lows and the major news with a friend of mine. Vidushina Hantaraja, sports feature writer of The Independent. We covered the Women's World Cup, Bubbles, Administration, IPL, The 100, and that vector of disease. All right, Fish, I'm going to take you back to perhaps the greatest thing that happened in 2020 of almost anything. It was the fact that Katy Perry came back to cricket. And this time <laughs> she was forced not to dance with Dougie Bollinger while he was a little bit inappropriate with her. This time it was all about her and the Women's World Cup final. That was one of the greatest things that ever happened to cricket. It feels like it happened 83 years ago, but I did check the date. It did happen in 2020. It did, yeah, yeah. And it's funny, you wouldn't have thought it happened in 2020 given how little women's cricket we've seen since. But... <laughs> that was the end of women's cricket. We, we, we perfected it and everyone just went, all right, we're going <laughs> to shut up shop now. Why don't you all start podcasts, women? yeah that was basically it It was really so like it was quite funny because um i suppose the offshoot of that is you know the the world closed down you know a week later and so quite a few well quite a few a couple of um, england players were stuck out there including lauren winfield who who got married and i was talking to her about it and i was like you know you were always going to get married but if you thought if you weren't going to get married would you have stayed for the final bear in mind how heartbreaking the semi-final loss was where they didn't even play the whole thing was rained off. And she was like, you kind of have to, don't you? Like, it's such a huge moment that your professional pride of losing in a semi-final and not wanting to be anywhere near the final. You know, we see at finals day where the team that loses the first semi-final, they go and get pissed at the walkabout in Birmingham. They don't pay attention to what goes on the next few games. Except for George Bailey, who, if you remember a couple of years ago, actually got drunk in the outer. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he got in the stands, didn't he? To the blokes that were sledging him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and had a beer. But you're right. Usually they go to the walkabout. <laughs> yeah, um, and but they, I mean, I suppose that kind of summed it up. And like you know, women's cricketers have always been a bit like this. They've always had to see the bigger picture, and they've been the best ambassadors of their sport that you can get. But it was, it was nice that like, well, I suppose it showed how important it was that they were like, no, 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 we got to stay for this. We've got. Mm. Who cares if we? Who cares if we're not involved? We've got to be a part of it. And. Um, you know, it wasn't the same without Doug Bollinger, I'm not going to lie. Um, and I thought... <laughs> Few things are. <laughs> and I thought, I, I thought it, you know, it lacked a bit, but then, you know, Sophie Molyneux's got moves, Molly Strano's got moves. I feel like they've more than made up for it on stage. I, you know, I don't want to downplay the IPL. What was it, 2008, 2009? It was a while back, wasn't it? But the dancing had certainly improved, I think, uh, on whole. <laughs> also, it looked like Katy Perry was a bit... If you remember the IPL footage, she just looks weird the whole time, like... Why am I here? What is this event that I am at? Whereas it felt like she she played up with the, with the women's final a little bit more. It's the biggest moment that's ever happened in women's uh, cricket, I think, by a considerable distance. I know that there was probably a a crowd not too far off that back in the day in Eden Gardens um, a long time ago, but that was a bit of a flare up that never really happened again. For people like you and me who have sort of covered it sort of part-time um, as much as we can, um, trying to fit it in. It felt like finally everything had changed. And then five minutes later, women were not allowed to play cricket anymore. 
Yeah, it's like being back, uh, being back at the Lord's Pavilion in like pre nineteen ninety nine. Which every time I say that day, I'm like, no, but like I was thirteen in nineteen ninety nine. How is that still a thing? But you know, we're part of that. Yeah, do you remember? You know, you, you're a film buff, so you know this. You know, in Goodwill Hunting, where he says, "I want to knock on your door, and I don't want you to answer because I want you to be you. You're doing better things. You're not coming yeah. to our basic kind of white collar job." And specifically with the England team, who I who I've, I've dealt with more often than not. You could call them any time you wanted and get you know a quote out of them, get a piece out of them. But slowly you're be, you're almost building them up to the stage where they want to say, actually, you know what? Can you speak to my agent? Mm. And that felt like that, that we we're approaching that moment where they had eighty thousand in, but also they just had more important shit to do. It's funny you bring that up because I I contacted uh, during the lockdown. I contacted a, a couple of um, English women footballers. And they did say, "Can you talk to my agent? Can you talk to my team? Can you talk to the management?" And I was just like, "What are you talking about?" I literally, I could send Heather, Heather Graham a DM right now. <laughs> Heather Graham. Heather Graham. <laughs> Heather Locklear. <laughs> I meant Heather Locklear. Yes. I could yeah, also yeah. Do. All the Heathers. The point is, if I can contact, you know, Megan Shoot. Like all these people are available to us as cricket writers. Yeah, if we, if yeah. we can't get to them straight away, we can get to them within. One move, whereas you and I both know if you want to get to, you know, a top level male cricketer, it's 12 moves and you still have to mention their vitamin supplement company and, (laughs) you know, all those sorts of things. So, you know, there is certainly a, it is a different situation. So I know what you mean. It felt like they finally started to get to that level where they are, you know, just top level professional athletes. Yeah. Yeah. And then I suppose because of what followed afterwards, and and I I don't even think it's, you know, we all understood that sport wasn't going to be the same, but and, you know, as I wrote in this piece for The Independent when I reviewed the year, the lifeboat for English cricket was the men's international programme. And that's kind of come through because they've managed to restrict their losses to, you know, just over 100 million. But, you know, even the fact that there was news today, you know, we're recording this on, on New Year's Eve, but there was news today that the India-Australia series has been postponed until next season and everything's been moving along. Like England are thinking of touring, England women are thinking of touring New Zealand in the same window where they were going to host the um, the next T20 World Cup, which was going to build on what we saw earlier this year. And despite the fact that, you know, England, the England men played their full programme over the summer, the England women had to make do with the West Indies, you know. And worse, worse than that, actually, was they spent weeks in Derby training for, for nothing. And nothing in the sense of just train indefinitely. We'll get someone at yeah. some point, but... You know, in the meantime, here's you know here's a bit part hotel in Derby. With all due respect, we've all stayed in bit part hotels in Derby. Yeah, I mean, let's but... be honest, it's the travel lodge, isn't it? <laughs> I think it was, yeah. yeah. Not because that travel lodge ends up becoming one of the biggest stories in cricket this year because <laughs> both sets of women, uh, England and West Indian women, stayed there. The Pakistani men stayed there. I think the West Indian men stayed there, and the Australian men stayed there. Now, the Australian men have not stayed in a hotel that shit quality. I'm going to assume since the last time they were in Zimbabwe. And remember, they complained so much when they were in Zimbabwe that they brought their own Wi-Fi routers in because they said the hotel was so bad, <laughs> right? So I can't remember when they last in Zimbabwe. I'm going to say maybe 2010, 2011, somewhere there, right? That was the last time they had to stay in a hotel as shit as the Travelodge in Derby. All due respect to the Travelodge in Derby, which I've never <laughs> had to stay in, luckily. I stayed in some bad hotels in Derby, not particularly that one. Well, it became like a holding cell, didn't it? That, <laughs> it was just like, right, you, you got, you've got to spend some time in here. Yeah, this is your quarantine. You can leave, but you'll be, still be in Derby. <laughs> uh, I mean, just an incredible type. So so the women really got stuffed up, but that wasn't just the case in cricket, obviously. That was, that was a case right across the board um, in, in sport at that point. 
One of the other interesting things that I found was the first cricket board that really started hemorrhaging money was Cricket Australia, despite the fact that nothing had been cancelled. So their finances were so thin and so reliant on global markets and investments that they had clearly that like without any series being cancelled at all, without the Big Bash being devalued before Channel 7 even got involved, Cricket Australia just lost the plot, didn't they? I mean, a lot was made of it at the time, but I don't think the rest of the world really appreciated how absurd that was because, you know, it's something that you've written about a lot in terms of the big three and the way that they've kind of... Basically, if you're going to hoard all the wealth, you've got to have some wealth in a situation <laughs> like this. Where has it gone? What have you done with it? Where's the money? You know, you, if, you're, if you're taking food out of Zimbabwe's mouth, you know, at least save some for later. Don't eat it all at once. And I think that's when people realised, you know, how much this is all built on sand. And, mm. you know, a lot's made of the, the ECB's cash reserves and how much they spent putting together something like the 100. But my word, if they didn't have any of that, we'd have seen counties go bust. The, mm. You know, the game would be in, in real trouble here because it's, I, I don't know about, about Australia, but evidently it sounds like it might, because of, you know, that issue, it's, it's kind of linked from the top down. And that's not too dissimilar to cricket. Like, you know, the ECB have had to cut down on schemes that bring new people into the game. They've had to cut down on schemes that are specifically for, you know, people, you know, kids between the ages of like five and, and nine, you know, mm. and that's just the way the game is over here. That's just the way it's structured. And, you know, there are, there are benefits to that, but you only really see the downsides at a time like this. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I've had so many friends who've lost jobs, um, especially from mm. the smaller countries. I think, you know, I, I think I might know a couple of people from Cricket Australia, um, have gone. Obviously, Cricket South Africa is in its own permanent mess, which we could talk about a little bit later. But it certainly, you know, it has affected the industry uh, quite a bit. Let's talk about the 100 a little bit. Could they have played the 100 this year with no crowds? No, no, because the whole point is getting people watching it, isn't it? And yeah. getting, you know, and to be seen with people watching it. That was the whole premise of it was that, I suppose, the reason for distancing itself from the county game is because they didn't want any of the association. They kind of, they were, it's like when you move from primary school to secondary school and you, you end up going to the same secondary, secondary school as someone in primary school who you in your own mind think is not as cool as you. So you're like, I can't go in there and say hello to him on day one. Yeah. And that's kind of how they approach this. That sounds really terrible. The, that, that was my example, and you agree with it straight away. I was not that person, but... <laughs> I, I wasn't sure which person you were in that story, to be honest. I thought you might have been the other one and just felt it more, so I was just <laughs> nodding in case you had pain. It, it's really interesting because Sri, Sri Lanka obviously went ahead with their league, which was played on a ground of eight inches wide, maybe the <laughs> smallest cricket surface that has ever hosted a professional cricket game, and I include the ones in Hong Kong in that. You know, incredibly small ground. It felt very weird. There was some... Very entertaining moments in that, not not always on purpose, but, you know, some great things happen. And it's good that Sri Lanka, who somehow managed to balls up their first tournament so bad that they just had about, what, eight, nine years where they haven't had another one, you know, got to that point. But you did feel watching it, and I'm, I'm sure you watch it like I did, you know, a little bit. You did feel watching it that it wasn't a good way to la launch a tournament. And if the 100, if the whole idea of the 100 was it for it to be cool and new, I could see why ECB might have pushed it through, but it would have been so weird to be playing that in em empty stadiums when it's never existed before. Yeah, and you would have had to have done it with basically the, the T T20 Blast roster. You know, you think of all the big players they've got in over for that and all the promises that they've made mm. about star quality. And with all due respect to, you know, we'd already had the T20 blast and that's already good, but you know, this was going to be something different. This was going to be better. This was going to be flashier. Are you saying Luke Fletcher may not have put bums on seats? 
I wouldn't say that actually because he's a big bloke. I would say <laughs> who's someone small. I would who's say <laughs> maybe Alex Hughes wouldn't have done, um, <laughs> even though he's a good player. Uh, but the but that's the point, isn't it? It would have been a different tournament in not just in the crowds. It, it would have been uh, di- you know some of the coaches may not have been able to come over as well. Yeah, uh, you know yeah. all the different sort of star quality that you had. The only thing that I thought about from a logistics point of view is it would have been quite interesting because there wasn't much sport on TV. Had they been able to dominate the sport on TV side of things for a couple of months, and then next year you might have had a bunch of kids who would have already been, had a bit of a had a little bit of a sniff if you you know first taste is free <laughs> sort of situation yeah, right. you know that was the only thing i thought they might have been able to do but I, I don't think they made a mistake by not doing that yeah i mean like do you think it works that way I, i'm i'm really kind of i really go back and forth with the free to wear argument in general because i kind of think cricket is it is a complicated sport whichever way you dress it up mm-hmm. and i think you know t20 is a, has been a good way of making that environment seem less intimidating but you still need to go to a T20 game and you still need to have someone next to you or indications around you of what is going on, which is why, you know, established cricket viewers often find it really annoying when T20 goes into that rundown phase in the, you know, in the last yeah. third of a match where it's, it's just balls and runs. And it doesn't necessarily show you who's got overs left because that kind of doesn't matter to the, I suppose, to the layman. Yeah, I get that. I mean, I, I grew up in Australia, in Melbourne with a bunch of people who, their parents didn't play cricket and weren't involved in cricket at all. And they all sort of came to cricket via Channel 9 and watching it on TV. Um, You know, they had Greek parents and Serbian parents and Turkish parents and all that sort of stuff. Very different backgrounds. And they got involved with it. And I always think that if you kind of put it in front of people and it looks a bit cool, kids sort of go to that in the same way that, you know, a whole generation of basketball fans from around the world watched NBA action and and sort of went with it. There's a there's something here that is worth watching, and I think that you need to do that. But on the other side of things, if you were trying to build the IPL, would the IPL have gone ahead for the first year in empty stadiums? Probably not. I don't think so. I can understand why yeah. you would go the other way. Like and as you said, the stars thing. If you can't get David Warner and Chris Gale and Mitchell Stark and you know AB De Villiers, there's a certain point where you just like. It is the county, the county game, and you want that high. You want you want non cricket journalists to be writing about it. You want you know uh, celebrity fans to be tweeting about it and all that sort of stuff. And I don't mean the, the celebrity fans that we know. No one from the Maccabees. I mean you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean the ones that don't normally tweet about the cricket. I don't. You know, I'm not talking about uh, what's his name from Faulty Towers either, who sometimes tweets about associate cricket. Oh, I'm John Cleese. Yeah. John Cleese in the Somerset. Uh, Does John Cleese tweet about associate cricket? He was watching the Scotland. Paul Van Meekeren doesn't count as tweeting about. He was literally tweeting about Scotland when Scotland played West Indies in that game where they got sawn off for the World Cup. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. But I don't know. <laughs> Scotland. I never consider Scotland as an associate nation because you know they spend so much money on analysts and things like that. They, they do far too much money. <laughs> let's uh, not talk about my former job. Um, <laughs> uh, let's go to the bubble for a moment. So, did you spend any time in a bubble? Yes and no. I spent time. <laughs> Seems well, like a simple question, and yet you've already it screwed do- it, it up. It does. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> so. The way it worked is we, the journalists, the written journalists who are coming in, or rather the, even the day workers who are dropping in and out mm-hmm. of a test match or an ODI, we were in what they were calling the outer bubble. <laughs> Technically, we were in the bubble, but we could have no interaction with anyone in the, I think there were three bubbles in front of us. So it was everyone on the field. Mm-hmm. It was then the people around the boundary per se who were involved in the broadcast, and then the people yep. behind them who were involved in 
catering and other other things like that and um you know the ground staff were involved with that as well and then there was us who were kind of just dropping in and out and so yeah i was involved and yet i wasn't yeah mm. Is that the most English cricket answer I can give you, by the way? It's a yes or no question, I said another answer both. Let me explain it for 10 minutes and then say yes or no. Um, (laughs) My my theory coming in was that we have been trained more than almost any other sporting watchers to accept watching our sport with no one in the ground. Because anyone who's ever been to a first-class game or to a game in Dubai, or even if you, if you cover a World Cup or something and you go to an, you know, I, I, I mean, I remember a couple of years ago going to... Um, Hong Kong, Zimbabwe, it was the first match of the World T20. And, you know, a couple of thousand people. And we're used to going to grounds where there are no people or very few people anyway. But did it did it still feel weird even within that? Yeah, it, it did. It did. Bear in mind that because of the moments we saw, you know, there was, I suppose, kind of game to game. There was the chase between, you know, Josh Butler and, and Wokes chasing down a total in the first Pakistan test. West Indies winning that first test of the summer. And then obviously, you know, Broad and Anderson's milestones. And that that did feel a bit different. You know, I, I'm not a big fan of applauding in press boxes. I know some people do. I know we've been in parts of the world where they even appeal in the press box as well. <laughs> but like, it generally felt like for Anderson and Broad, that like, we should like go yeah. outside and applaud. And, and, you know, sometimes for those huge moments, we do do that, actually, to be fair. Uh, but that felt a bit like we should, without even, without wanting to overstate like our influence on that, yeah moment you kind of felt like shit this this does it feels appropriate to to do this and so like we came out of the press box and and clapped and stuff like that but yeah it's, it's definitely not the same it's a lot easier walking around even though you got <laughs> getting to the ground <laughs> yeah a lot easier driving right in love all that but um yeah it, it just wasn't the same and like you're right we do see first class games and um and, other, and matches across the world where it doesn't matter but from an english point of view certainly from the players point of view one of the things that was talked about in all other sports was it would be interesting to see whether people who perform really well in training are able to, or, or if they find it easier to carry over that performance in competitive situation without the, without the very, very real pressure of crowds. Mm. And, you know, for example, you know, I mentioned that Butler Wokes chase. I wonder if they get there actually, if you do have a packed house full of, you know, which down. would be very loud Pakistan yeah. fans and, you know, just that sense of anxiety that you get that, you know, when you're in a chase or in, in that situation at all. In terms of players, you know, does Zach Rawley get a double hundred this summer? Maybe, actually, because mm. he's kind of that kind of player. But you do look at some of those performances, and I suppose it works both ways, doesn't it? Some people need to be in the bubble and they and to get or you know into that headspace. And to get into that headspace, they need noise to block out. Yeah. Well, I mean, you see you see it in the basketball, don't you? Like, you know, Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray suddenly going to another level in the bubble that they had hinted at before, but they hadn't gone to. So it is clearly a different kind of environment. And some yeah. people, maybe the people with like a, those two guys, they've got like a fierce passion within them. I remember reading about Donovan Mitchell. I was getting confused with Donovan, the, the bowling coach, Donovan Miller. The, the coach. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Donovan Miller's coach, yeah. Because I don't know that many Donovans, and I suddenly have two in my life that yeah. I am constantly talking about, and I always I just want to make sure I had the right, especially after the Heather thing. This is a thing. I've never talked about this before, but let's just quickly. I have real trouble if people even have slightly similar first names. So I worked with two women for 10 years, right? One was Kirsty and one was Christy, and I had two nicknames for both of them because I couldn't remember their real names, despite the fact they look nothing alike. We're very different people. Brian Cox, Albert Finney, and what's the other one? Albert Brooks. To this day, I know they are three different people, right? 
But I, and Brian Dennehy also. Oh my god, all four of those get so mixed up in my head. So I have I have big problems with that. That has nothing to do with what I'm, what I'm talking about. But what I mean is that Donovan Mitchell is one of those guys. He comes off the court and goes straight to the analysts and the coaches, and they go through every frame of his game with him so he can improve. Jamal Murray, I don't know if you know the full story about Jamal Murray, but his dad is a Jamaican who made him do push-ups in the snow on the driveway every day to get strong. For it's the most, it's the my favorite. Jamaican basketball story, and I include everything that ever happened with Patrick Ewing there. Those sorts of people have that built-in desire within them. Yeah. Probably do better in those sorts of situations, whereas someone else who likes the theatre of the world, uh, you know, of, of the situation, someone like Ben Stokes, maybe doesn't get up as much just because, you know, that they like that. And I think maybe that is something that we found out at times, or maybe it was just one of fluke performances. You, you don't know, do you? Yeah, yeah, and I suppose, you know, we'll have, as you mentioned with, with Murray and Mitchell, we're going to have a season played out where we think, oh, maybe we'll find out a bit about them. But even then, you know, it's still under the same circumstances where there aren't going to be any fans. <laughs> I was speaking to Ben Jones about this um, of Crickvitz because I was like, it'd be, I find it's just a fascinating control experiment because, mm. you know, we'll see how things play out. Even, you know, even little things like the fact that no cricket had been played on those grounds and usually... You know, things like reverse swing rely on on squares that are slightly used and stuff like that. And obviously that doesn't play as much of a part in parts of the world where you've got dropping pitches, where you don't get that wear and tear. But, you know, I thought there were like all these different things to consider. Um, and obviously on top of that, bear in mind the saliva ban as well mm. and how that would affect things. But yeah, I mean, like, you know, you, you write a lot about um, player mentality, but also, you know, you have the numbers in your roles as an analyst as well. Where do the highs and lows, where are they more pronounced? And is that actually pertaining to, to fan pressure or is it just like, you know, final four, you know, finals type pressure? It's really weird. It's something I thought about a lot, especially with cricket, because if you look at T20 cricket, and that's the one we have the best pattern on, right? That follows a pattern of the yeah. game that the crowd doesn't really have anything to do with. In fact, if anything, the crowd would be so bored during the middle overs, they would want the batsman to hit out more in those middle overs. And even when the big bats have changed the rules and the batsmen have just started blocking earlier, they started blocking in the fifth <laughs> over rather than the seventh over because that's the pattern of the game. And so if that's the case, you do wonder how that works. But if you think about it, so Pat Cummins has bowled those really, really long spells at times this summer, right? And with a little crowd there, is that a slightly harder thing to do if you're not going down a fine leg and everyone's telling you how great you are and in the last over you didn't get the ooze and the ahs. I, I, I don't know. I, I, re I really don't know. And that's why I was sort of saying that I think there are two different kinds of players. I think that Jonathan Trott and Steve Smith, I don't think would be affected with or without a crowd. Like I just don't yeah. think the way that they play would be affected with or without a crowd. Whereas I think someone like Merv Hughes, who probably, what, he averaged about 28 with the ball. I reckon if you played him in, in empty stadiums, maybe just, a, you know, just a slight bump up to his average just because he loved being the, the villain or the hero and the caricature and playing up to the crowd. All of that sort of matters. And I, you know, I, I, I wonder how that goes, but as far as the game goes, I just, I don't think it would have an overall effect. I think the game would still go in the same pattern, but you think about the chases. I, I find that really interesting because you, you know, having been in Headingley in 2019 and then having watched the works Butler one on, it felt very much like a first class chase. Yeah, but when you're watching yeah. a first-class cricket, there's a little bit of that pressure there, but the pressure is the crowd doesn't rise and fall and rise and fall, and especially if it would have been Pakistan, and let's say Pakistan would have expected to be there, so maybe you have 2,000 really loud Pakistani fans there, then you have a bunch of hardcore English fans um, who've come along. It would have just gone up and down and up and down, and we didn't have any of that 
And so whether that played a part in it, it's it's a really interesting thing that we'll never ever be able to answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's like if you if you watch back the um if you watch back the Headingley Stokes innings, like he plays his most outlandish shots when he's you know, when it's nine down, which is understandable because the onus is on him to do more of the run score in there. But the crowd is it's at its loudest when he hits what in isolation could have been seen as, you know, consolation boundaries. Mm. Cause it was a bit like, right. He, we, you kind of know he's got to go all out and you have no hope that he's going to do this. You know, yeah. I, I remember speaking to, um, Colo, Adam Collins walked around was, and was taking photos when, when Leach came out and he said like the atmosphere around him was great because it's a beautiful day, yeah. sunny, Stokes his teeing off. He might get out any minute now. Let's try and enjoy every second of this before, you know, um, the final right to red. And, there was a moment when he noticed it flipped where mm. people started going to the bar to get drinks. Cause he's like, Oh, it's going on a bit longer. And then people stopped going to the bar. Cause they're like, Oh shit. He's, this is happening now. Yeah. And he reckons it was about 20 runs to go when it was a bit like, right. Okay. This is, cause that's, that's five hits, four hits. Yeah. But there was certainly that period where there was kind of no hope. He got his hundred, everyone wild for that. And I suppose conversely, there are players who do really well in the tedium. So like Ram Prakash used to do this thing. The sorry analyst has numbers for this. I don't. But he said he used to do this thing where he'd always score two boundaries in the over before lunch because everyone was already thinking about lunch. <laughs> and someone mentioned this to him in the dressing room. And I want to say typical Rams like, don't tell anyone a thing. People bowl badly in that over before lunch because they just assume we're going to block out anyway. So you get mm. so many freebies and no one remembers that you've done that. And so you can get, if you wanted to, you can get 10 runs in that last over and suddenly you're you're 30 going into a break or you're 70 going into a break and everything seems a lot easier. Yeah, no, it makes sense. It really does. The one dark spot of the English bubble was Joffre Archer going home with his dog, which I still <laughs> think is one of the more remarkable things ever that England just didn't get a bus and that was allowing their players to, to drive around in their own cars. Also... I don't know how much he loves his dog, but I'm, I'm not sure I ever quite fully bought the dog side of that story. But it went pretty successfully as a as a bubble. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it helps when you've got a lot of money and you've mm. told people to invest in huge grounds with huge hotels, joining them, you know, that that's a massive bonus. And we've already seen how quickly that unravels elsewhere. But it was, you know, it was a huge success. It was, I mean, this in the best way possible, but it was over the top. You know, there were um, hand sanitizing stations everywhere, really clear signage. They, um, you know, the hotel rooms were big enough with balconies that people had indoor and outdoor space. Uh, even when, you know, when Joffre Archer had that breach of protocol, he had to spend the majority of the, well, five days in his room until he got his test results back. And players would like, go outside his door and chat to him, but chat to him over WhatsApp. They would play Xbox with him, you yeah. know, Call of Duty and stuff like that. And which is, you know, a great kind of way of keeping up that kind of camaraderie to a modern age. But I suppose it's never been a better time to be quarantined in your hotel room, is it? Because <laughs> of all the streaming facilities we have and, you know, playing games online and being able to keep in, in contact and see people face to face in the same way that we're doing now remotely. So yeah, it kind of, it's weird to say it came at the perfect time, but yeah, it was um, from top to bottom in terms of how they executed it and how they pulled it off, how they got away with certain breaches. You know, that was one of them. 
Um, there were a few things on the other side, which I suppose didn't get reported because it wasn't a player, but, you know, there's certain issues in yeah. there that they managed to avoid as well. There's also, like, the players being able to pull out the performances they were able to pull out and make it entertaining was obviously... I mean, that that's the only reason we were there. That's the only reason this was all mm. put on. Well, I mean, and I'm holding, like, a billion-dollar contract, but whatever. <laughs> Mainly about the cricket. Um, and also, like, the... The sacrifice of the people behind the scenes, you know, hearing people like people involved in the BBC production who didn't see their kids for months and months. And I can understand why, you know, it's a luxury that people were working, but, you know, I don't have kids. You've got three kids. You've got a newborn as well. You can understand and empathize with the the stress of that. And also the people who were just working at the hotels, who the stories of people having to sleep on floors because there was enough space in the hotels and the sacrifice that they made and the ground stuff as well. It was interesting that Broad mentioned he didn't realise how early ground staff got up, but because they were there at the ground and they would wake up and see them like doing stuff at six in the morning, they were like, how did he not know that? <laughs> I know. Yeah. But I suppose we you all, yeah. Until you see someone out there at like yeah. five or six in the morning, you don't really appreciate how, I, I, I won't name him, but I remember speaking to someone there and he was like, cause yeah, cause if they're doing stuff at five, they would have had to wake up, woken up at four. And I was like, People wake up at 4am for their jobs. Some people only go to, go to sleep at 4am after their jobs. You know, it's a, this is a thing that happens, you know. <laughs> They're not the first people to do that. I mean, it was, yeah, it was, um, it, it was very interesting. I think cricket is, was uniquely trained for this because the England players would be used to pl- going to places like Bangladesh and India where you can't go out as much. If you play in the IPL, in some of those uh, smaller venues, you can't go out as much. You know, anyone with kids who works at cricket is used to traveling without them uh, to all those sorts of things. So w- I think, I mean, I, I, I listened to, you know, the Aussie rules footballers and the basketballers really go, oh my God, we're going to have to be away from It's just like, yeah, that's just a cricket tour. But if you've never done it before, of course it's a big thing. Whereas in cricket, I think a lot of us were, were pre-trained. I mean, I say a lot of us, I didn't have to do any of this. So it was great. I sat at home. It, was, it, was re- <laughs> re- it worked really well for me. I also thought it was the most cricket thing ever that the team that has had the most positive coronavirus cases uh, twice now is Pakistan. It, like if anyone was going to do it, and especially, do you remember that first one when they were going to England? There was like 12 of them that had positive cases. And then the next day they were all ret- retested and like negative four of them had positive cases, <laughs> you know, and then, and then they get to New Zealand and New Zealand hasn't had a case in, you know, four months. And then and Pakistan is set up with positive cases again. It's just absolutely the most Pakistani cricket thing ever to be the ones that just like, just for the bands, we're going to be the ones that all have coronavirus. Yeah, there's a joke to be made about, you know, date of births and how a single Pakistan player can both be in the high risk and low risk category of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the um, it's funny, isn't it? Because the England team generally, when they go about their business, from the outside, you might term it as cliques, but, you know, everyone has their kind of different pocket. Whereas... Mm. The Pakistan team generally are always a lot more together, like, you know, physically a lot more yeah. together. Go to dinner as a big group a lot, don't they? Yeah, exactly. And, and like one of the things about um, Pakistan touring England that's gone on in the past is they get given their per diem, but they never spend it because every meal is paid for by someone else. Someone yeah. else wants to take them to a meal. Someone else wants them to open a restaurant. Someone else wants them to be their guests, even in their own homes. I definitely lost a bit of that, more so than I suppose some of the West Indies players just didn't because of the, there's a different conversation to be had about the lack of Caribbean representation in, in cricket over the last 20 years and how it's dwindled. But certainly with Pakistan, that's, that's, that was quite a big, um, a big part of that. So Pakistan have had a quite a few um, 
you know, South Africa, what, I think they had three or four, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we got the full number. South Africa were very coy about it, weren't they? But I, I know of three off the top of my head. But there was also been a, there was a couple of domestic guys as well in South Africa, wasn't there? Because their domestic cricket was open back up as well. So, yeah, they're, they're not far behind. I just don't think – see, this is the thing. I just don't think South Africa did it as funny. They didn't all go in on the bit. <laughs> they're too conservative, aren't they? We've always said this about them, you know. <laughs> If there was a comedy stage of 2020, they'd be they'd knocked out in the in the semi-final stage. So. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure they've got a committee working out why that has happened. Um, as we talk about it. <laughs> well, it's Amy de Villiers' fault, isn't it? So yeah. <laughs> uh, it's worth talking about the other bubble team. I think we've mentioned almost all the English bubble teams except for Ireland. So associate cricket. I know Ireland's not technically an associate anymore, but associate cricket was hit really, really hard. People from Cricket Scotland have lost their jobs. You know, Papua New Guinea. Incredible story, get to the, the World Cup, Thailand women's team, or you know, even the Brazilian women's team. Everything was going in the right direction for a bunch of different associate teams, and then suddenly it stops. I thought the fact that Ireland still went to the UK and played and won was an incredible thing, though. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, even though people tried to want to sell it as uh, you know, a second eleven England team. But and I, I love as well that part of this year that's been most disappointing and, and again you know you've done a lot of work on this but it's just how the economic inefficiencies having mm. revealed themselves are now just being skewed more towards the big three in a more transparent way so even down to like the narrative of Ireland winning what was deemed a dead rubber despite the fact that it counted towards championship points <laughs> yeah like even that was a way to do them down. Yeah, incredibly disappointing. You, you know, I've I've got a lot of friends at Cricket Scotland as well who, uh, yeah, have been in um, some trouble and have lost their jobs. And that's the thing about this. You know, people losing their jobs is fundamentally bad across the board. But someone at the ECB losing their job is very different to someone at Cricket Scotland yeah. losing their job because down the line that job might become available, and that person who lost their job might be able to get a job elsewhere within cricket, within English cricket. That's not going to be the same in, in Scotland. It's definitely not going to be the same in Papua New Guinea. Yeah. Or, or even kind of Afghanistan to an extent. You know, Afghanistan, if you think Oman. Like, I mean, Oman was another team that made the World Cup. I feel like even little things, like some of the teams that didn't make the T20 World Cup, like Kenya. I was watching Kenya and going, this is the first time I've watched Kenya in a while and thought they, they're not back to 2003, but there's a lot of talent in and around the squad. All they need is maybe two good years of a run and a little bit of money from the government and they could come back. And my chances are that that's gone now. So that little period that they could have come back again, they're gone. And there's a few just little countries like that. Like, remember, just over a year ago now, the UAE had a third of their squad done for match fixing yeah, yeah. at the T20. Of, of any team that just needed to get out there and have some have their young players playing, they've got some good young players coming through. It was UAE. All that, it's just gone, isn't it? And it, and that is just a huge problem. For, it, it's all, it was already a huge problem for cricket. But to throw coronavirus on top of that, uh, you know, I think women and the associates and disability cricket, they're the ones really struggling. Cricket South Africa will eventually bumble their men's team back into something, something decent where people actually want to play them again and not all have the threat of uh, having a uh, killer bry. Those things will happen. <laughs> Whereas, you know, for the associates and the women and the disability, it's just like, it's almost a year of no cricket for most of them. Um, maybe longer, maybe 18 months. So that's that's quite bad. Let's go to something slightly more fun. And this is very England-based, this one. Uh, the vector of disease. For those who, do, who aren't aware of the vector of disease, could you briefly uh, tell the audience about that one? 
Uh, so basically, I suppose it started with the push towards grassroots cricket because of the timing of the pandemic and certainly the way things shut down in the UK, it came just before the cricket season. And so recreational cricket was was a part of um, many of the other sports that were closed off. And despite the fact that cricket can be played at a pretty comfortable distance, um, we, you know, with all the precautions that needed to be taken, uh, yeah, it, it didn't get the green light until very, very late on into the summer. And as a result, you know, clubs were going going under and mm. yeah the the sport was just losing its hold on the fabric of um of what it is in this country which is you know a, a, an everyman sport despite you know what other people might perceive of cricket in the UK in general and part of that was down to Boris Johnson and a lot of government posturing that when he was called to actually make a comment on the on the issue and why it was a problem he said the cricket ball was a, a vector of disease <laughs> I knew it was coming and it still made me laugh. <laughs> but it's funny, isn't it? Because cricket nomenclature is one thing, but there are enough names for a ball in cricket that we didn't need another one. The pill? <laughs> the pill, the seed, the nuts. But I'm just saying the pill would have been perfect in that particular case. Well, yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. No, you're right, exactly. And he's also, he went to Eton. He would have played cricket. I've seen pictures of him in white. It's not like basketball where he was asked questions about basketball and he looked like he was sweating out of his ears because uh, afraid he was going to say something racist for the 4,000th time that day. I mean, it's cricket. If a Tory government aren't going to understand cricket, then what <laughs> hope is there? If you want an idea of how disconnected you know, England is from cricket, let it be known that a Tory government didn't want to know what to do when it came to the game. Yeah, it, it was an incredible moment, especially I think at the same time basketball was being played. And as someone who's played a lot of both sports, I was just like, that basketball is just going to have lots of sweat on it. There's no way in basketball you can't have sweat. And you've got 10 people sharing it at a time. A cricket ball, you could actually, to a certain extent, sort of mitigate, I think. Uh, especially as there's a lot of guys who don't move in the field, so they're not sweating. To be fair, some of those guys probably still sweat when they're not moving. But you know what I mean. Anyway, that was the fun one. Let's get back to another uh, a, a darker time. Black Lives Matter movement comes through and is obviously very important. I suppose it was women's basketball and men's basketball that sort of pushed it, although it came from Colin Kaepernick as well. But the West Indian players sort of took it upon themselves to be flag bearers of black people in a way that they kind of hadn't done in a long time. I know privately they had. I mean, it's not like they don't they haven't lived their life in that way, but they hadn't really come out really since, you would almost say since Viv Richards, they hadn't had a really big political presence with star players. And the fact that they made such a big deal of it and were so upset at times with um, some of their treatment. And I know having, you know, spent a lot of time with West Indian cricketers over the last couple of years that, this is something that is very close to their hearts. This isn't something that they saw a bunch of Americans doing and went, oh, we'll, we'll get involved with. This is something I think they just hadn't worked out sort of how to do it. And suddenly that there was an availability to them. But the, the ripple effects, you know, the way that it's confused cricket in South Africa, which is just hilarious, of all the countries that should just take a knee and shut the fuck up, <laughs> I think it's probably South Africa. The fact that Australia then got in a weird situation with it as well. You know, England obviously did uh, quite well with it. So, you know, different countries have gone to it. But, you know, it is something I think in cricket that we haven't talked about enough and we haven't really come to terms with. If West Indies keep pushing it forward, it's something that will be very hard for the rest of cricket to sort of ignore. But do you not think by by being the West Indies as they are, you know, a majority black team in a non-majority black sport, their very presence, even the, even the fact they're still called the West Indies, 
it's always had political connotations. Like there's a reason oh, yeah. whenever they, whenever there's a reason whenever we come to town, we talk about Richards and we talk about, you know, those scenes at the Oval. You know, it's always it's, it's something that's always brought up, and it's something we always think about while they're on tour and then forget. And we go in that cycle, don't we? So I think. Do you remember years ago when uh, Sri Lanka was beating India in the 2014 T20 World Cup, right? Yeah. And I wrote a thing going, everyone's going to see this as Sri Lanka beating. India and it's no big deal because Sri Lanka is a decent cricket team. I said, but you have to think about this politically and where Sri Lanka is as a nation, the population that they have, what they've achieved in any other sport outside of cricket and all of those sorts of things. I think we do a similar thing with West Indies being a black team. It's almost so much part of the furniture of cricket because it hasn't been brought to the front as much uh, uh, over the last, what, 30 years maybe? It just hasn't been as big a deal as it should be. Whereas in actual facts, you know, what you'll get is, as you said, you'll get little cultural moments where you'll talk about, oh, what used to happen in Antigua or what used to happen at the Oval or what happened in 1960, 61 in Australia and those sorts of things. But what you don't get is every day the, the sort of normal reality of here's a black team in, a, as you said, a predominantly well white and brown sport, I suppose now. And I think that the Black Lives Matter movement allowed us to all go, everyone in cricket to go, we need to think about this far better than we have before. I could be wrong. No, 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 I think you're right. And that, that's kind of what I was getting at, actually, because I think a lot of times the West Indies team and their history with teams around the world is used as an excuse as to, well, no, we do, we do fine. We had loads of black players in county cricket during the yeah. 70s, you know, when um, we had you know, Ghana playing club cricket here, we had Viv playing club cricket over there, Clive Lloyd was playing club cricket over there. I mean, someone did throw a banana at Ghana at Lords, didn't they? But they're not, they don't mention that, do we? He's just a good <laughs> captain, yeah? That's what we talk about. Oh, and his hat. Um, but yeah, it was, what was really good was that they, I think, I think the one thing that we should learn from the Black Lives Matter movement is that it really is about being an ally here. And it's not just about, you could even go a bit further, you know, um, a US journalist, Tyler Tynes, who writes for The Ringer, who talked about actually being a bit more than an ally, being an accomplice, you know, help people with that change and be in those rooms and, and help actually fight those fights rather than mm. opening doors, go walk into that room with them. And I think with the West Indies, what they were able to do, because England have never been particularly good at this, and with all due respect to Joe Root, I thought he, he acquitted himself very well when he was called upon, but it's not his fight to start. It's his fight to get involved with, but it's not his fight to start. And the way that Jason Holder and the other West Indies players kind of just grabbed a bit little and left nothing up to chance, really. There was yeah. no... You know, we didn't need any more clarity from them. They said what they needed to say. They told us what they were going to do. They did what they did and they stood by it. And backed up by, you know, Michael Holding and Ebony Renford Ben on that first day at Sky, it really just got the ball rolling and got us having conversations that we needed to have. And, you know, George Zabel's piece for Quick Info, where he spoke to black cricketers who've been involved in the game, it was a great way of showing people actually that, like, you know, the, the, but the players you loved, they didn't feel loved. You know, the players yeah. that you talked about having these opportunities. They didn't feel like they were getting the right kind of opportunities or rather the opportunities they were getting had all these caveats attached to them. Yeah. And, you know, so like I wrote my piece about that and someone rightly came at me on Twitter and said, you frame that as if Michael Carberry of Hampshire in England came after his words came after theirs did. It's like, well, actually he had the first conversation this summer and it was, he was absolutely right. But it took those two to actually broaden out the conversation, which in itself is a huge shame. And it's yeah. something that Carberry has been talking about for a couple of years now. But only in this summer was it framed in a in a sympathetic and, and an empathetic way. Yeah. I remember uh, talking to my, my wife about it when it was happening, and she was just like, they just have to start hiring qualified black people across 
sort of cricket spectrum. And I said, the problem was that they basically bred them out of existence. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. If you go to club cricket in London, someone like um, Alex Shooter's brother does a lot of good work and there's a lot of, you know, very good people in, in, in that sort of level. But at the higher levels, you and I know, you know we, we talked about him before, didn't we? Donovan Miller, the um, uh, West Indian. So he was, was he brought up in the UK? I know he's West Indian, but he, I know he spent a lot of time in the West Indies and in, in the UK. So I'm not sure what. Played minor counties here, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. Someone like him, when I saw him in the ECB Nets, throwing it down. I didn't recognize him straight away, although I, I think I might have met him um, in the CPL a couple of years ago. But when I saw him, my first question to everyone was, who's that? Yeah, yeah. Because you do not see black assistant coaches. I, mean, I can't think of many in county cricket, let alone helping the England team prepare for a World Cup. It was so noticeable and so stark uh, of that. So, I, yeah, I mean, it was incredible. And the way that that has then gone... Do you know why he was involved the first time? Because he was involved in the India series, I think. Do you know why he was involved? Because he throws left arm... Throwdowns. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And there are, I don't know if you know this, but I've been looking into it. There are like less than 10 people around the yeah. world. It's him like, and Anne Botha. Anne yeah. Botha's one. There's, yeah. there's so few. And not only are there so few, do, do you know the whole politics of um, throwdowns? No, I don't know. So the more I've worked with cricket, the more I've worked. I, uh, there's probably like a 9,000 word piece in this for me. Batsmen realize that at a certain age, coaches can't do it anymore. Yes. Yeah, but you yeah, can't yeah. say to your 45-year-old, 55-year-old assistant or even head coach, you can't do it. So they end up just all lining up at one guy and no one ever says anything. So if you have a young guy who can do it, so Donovan's skill is not just that he's good at it. I mean, he was also hired because he'd worked in the CPL. I think he'd been a head coach in the CPL by that point. And he'd also, you know, he had good white ball practice. So England were picking the best available for a number of different reasons. He just also happened to have that left arm. But because he's young and he can still piff them down, and his left arm. It's just like he's one of the rarest people in the world <laughs> just because of throwdowns. It's so, it is so, such a weird little world. But just to go on from that, that, that then goes on to what happens in Yorkshire, uh, which, is, which is incredible. So I'm going to tell you my story. I have to be a little bit careful here, but very early on in my career, I was talking to a player who uh, was England fringes player and sort of saying to him, I don't get why Adil Rashid is not playing for England. Like he, he played a couple of one days. I think he was man of the match in a one day and three games later, I didn't play for England again for, you know, and then came in and out. That was 2009. And he was just like, oh, I just got to understand he's got a bad attitude. And I was just like, sure, man, what's his bad attitude? And, and he said, oh, it's, it's just, it's really hard to explain, but he doesn't really fit in. And I was just like, just, just flesh that out. And then obviously he felt like he was being attacked a little bit and backed away. I hadn't lived in the UK that long when I started hearing that. And because I was a white Australian guy coming into the UK and no one knew me, so didn't know I was a rabid lefty at that point. They just People assumed felt I, comfortable talking to you about this stuff. The, yeah. the stuff that was told to me from 2008 through to 2010 by assistant coaches, by people, uh, you know, development coaches and all that sort of stuff. I was just like, it's got a huge problem. I remember having a conversation with Adol Ray about it, the comedian, uh, who obviously was involved in, in, in cricket as, uh, a little bit as well at times. Um, and I was saying to him, it's bad. And he goes, I just haven't come across it. And I said, I just don't think people are saying it to you, whereas they're just saying it to me like over and over and over again. It just manages to always keep below the surface and you, you know, there's been some, uh, Sahul Dutta back in the day wrote some pieces on it. I think you've written on it once or twice. And there was, there was another Asian English um, writer um, who wrote something on it. Obviously, a few more guys have written on it, you know, within the last year as well. But it just seemed that there was never a breakthrough moment of 
there is a fundamental problem here. And I've been having these conversations for 10 years with people with Inside Cricket just going, you're not setting this up so that they feel comfortable. You're, you're making it unrealistic for them to do it. And then you've got this young Zimbabwean cricketer who is part of your culture. That's because he's playing it the way that you want him to. And this other guy is doing it the way that he's been brought up to do it. There just seemed to be this huge disconnect that had never come over it. But I'd be more interested in, in what you thought with what happened with Yorkshire, but also your, your you know, I, I know that you, you are obviously um, Asian. Your family is from Sri Lanka, but you are also the seventh most posh person I know. Actually, that's probably not true is that I work in cricket. You're the 17th most posh person, <laughs> person I know. So you can almost see, it, you almost have a, a, an interesting look at it from both sides, I, I suppose is what I'm saying. Well, it's funny that um, you mentioned that people were, people were talking to you a certain way because you're white and Australian. Because I think because of my voice and which is a, you know it's a product of, of going to private school. Um, because of my voice, a lot of people get disarmed and start talking to me like that. <laughs> so, in a purely cricketing context, I've probably heard the word "packy" five times. I've heard it twice in a press box. Overheard it twice in a press box, and two other times were in conversations with people where we were talking about a Pakistan team or a group of Asian players. Um, and both those times were with people who are relatively high up in cricket, not necessarily in the ECB, but people with money who were involved in cricket. Yeah, And it was said in a way that was like, I made them feel comfortable enough for them to use that word. Whereas normally they would be guarded about using that word. And I was with a couple of people who... As always in this situation, you need white witnesses, don't you? <laughs> and thankfully, those people were white. So they can, they can vouch me if any kind of um, nondescript Dave 010101 comes at me on Twitter about this. <laughs> but it was really interesting because they were like, they reacted to it. And I was like, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm with them, but I, I kind of want to see how this plays out. You've shown me inside. I want to I see more. I want to see what else comes about. Yeah. Because a lot of the times when, when you write about this stuff, especially when you're writing about it in English cricket, from the point of view of Asian opportunity, it's really hard to do because loads of Asians play club cricket, loads of Asians play, um, in, are in the county ses, uh, system. Moeen Ali and Adil Rashid are really prominent Asians who've played at the moment. Ravi Bapara played 100 ODIs. So loads of people have loads of different outs. And the one thing I, I would say to some of those outs is, if you can name all the players, <laughs> that is a good sign that probably not enough, um, or certainly not, it's not representative of, of the larger ecosystem. Well, it's not representative of club cricket from, yeah, definitely from not, my yeah. experience. And it's also from someone who's worked for Crick Info and travelled the country, as far as cricket fans go, and it, my cricket fans are going to be different than BBC's cricket fans, but I would say that it's not representative of the cricket fans in the UK. Whereas... On the, the West Indian side of things, you occasionally come up against West. I mean, I used to live in Brixton, so I probably have I probably knew more West Indian cricket fans than, than anyone left in the UK. But when you travel around, you don't meet as many West Indian yeah. cricket fans in the rest of the country. Whereas you meet Asian cricket fans everywhere, whether they were born in Asia and still support the original team, whether they were born in England and support the team of their, their family, or whether they were born in England and support England and their team, whatever that combination is, there's a lot of them. But the, what you don't meet is a lot of CEOs and chairman of selectors and head coaches that are Asian. It drops off really quickly the higher you get up, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and then the other aspect to it is that I think what people don't understand is that those kind of prejudices aren't going to be manifested. Like no cricket team is standing there with a, you know, with a burning crucifix in their, you know, on the outfield. No one, no one is 
got a yet. sign saying no brown yet. people allowed yet yeah <laughs> yeah but it's it's the way that people get put off and you know what one of the things you hear a lot of for excellent excellent club cricketers is that you know they'd go to a trial and they wouldn't be you know they, they just wouldn't be looked at there'll be someone mm. else someone else is you know a friend of a friend or you know someone else will look over their, their mate's son or whatever or those opportunities go to specific places that network thing is how i've i don't i've never had a proper interview in cricket i don't know if you have i've never had a proper interview for for a job in cricket i've very nearly the, the funny story i very nearly had one to be the um general manager of operations at the IPL. I was actually told I was going to have an interview for that job and didn't have it. That's the closest I've ever had to having an interview in cricket. So when I got Cricket Scotland job, I was just offered the job. When I got Melbourne Stars job, St. Lucia Stars job, Crick Info, you know, TalkSport, all those things, never had any interview. And it is because that is how cricket runs. Now, that is very good for you and I because we're now in it, you know. Yeah, and you, exactly. I mean, you are my work experience kid, you know, and those sorts of connections really, really help. How many people working cricket now were once work experience kids for a cricket magazine or a cricket website or an intern? At, at, so if you can afford to do those sorts of jobs and you know the right people. And when you're talking about it from selection, that also goes into who the social media manager is and, you know, who does the PR, who does the marketing and all those sorts of jobs. And that's, it's not just who is on the field, it's everywhere. And that's kind of what we're both saying, isn't it? It's, it's that we know that the people are passionate about cricket. It's just not coming through. They're just not there. Yeah, yeah. And, and like a lot of it's going to be framed differently through the different, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, British agents here and, and a bit of an amorphous blob. But obviously, we know, having, you know, spoken to people from around the country, that British Pakistanis face a different issue to yeah. British Bangladeshis, who in turn face a different issue to middle class, well off British Indians. And, you know, what we're, what we're going to see, certainly in the South and certainly in London, is and you can kind of see it with the Conservative Party actually, you're going to see a certain level of affluence when it comes to British Asian families who are going to assimilate, I suppose, more evenly into the middle classes and therefore will be in opportunities, whether it's through private school or just given opportunities because they'll be within those friendship circles of families and whatever, yeah. where they'll be given certain opportunities to have a trial at Middlesex, to have a trial at, you know, Gloucestershire or, you know, I know someone up at Durham who can get you a trial there. But if you're someone of Pakistani origin growing up in the Birmingham area and you're not getting a look in at Edgbaston or Worcestershire, yeah. you might not even bother going to Worcestershire, really, or sorry, Warwickshire and Worcestershire. You might not even bother going to New Road. No, you're right. So, yeah, you, you, the, the opportunities and the, the avenues of conversation and, you know, your point about us and how we got into the industry is a great one because... I kind of wondered, you know, Jack Callis is going to be the England batting consultant on this job. And I love the idea that he had to audition for it, that he had to have put together a PowerPoint presentation for it <laughs> that wasn't just his quick info numbers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and we should say that most places in the UK where you have to sign forms, if you are like my wife, you have to sign, you have to tick the Asian other box. Because you've yeah, mentioned I do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You've mentioned that you have to do Pakistan. So if, if you go to the box in the UK, this, this, this is kind of what I'm talking about with the problem um, of, of it in general. And what you were talking about where, that a British Bangladeshi family has a different problem than a British uh, Pakistani family. Literally, when you're Sri Lankan, you don't even get a box with your own name on it. You're just suddenly Asian other. And it's good, <laughs> good luck, champ. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's, it's very interesting. And the way those two things played off each other was very interesting. And at least we're having the conversations because uh, we weren't having anything before. And, you know, I, I was really inspiring, you know, I still haven't sent Ebs a message because I figured her phone has probably been blowing up for four months. But just, I just want to send her a message and just go, 
just proud that I've ever, you know, hung around with you and you had the balls to do this and stand up for yourself. Now I'm doing it on the podcast, so she's going to have to listen. So maybe I'll send her the clip <laughs> rather than anything else. But, you know, it's it's just great that we are at that point. And even when it's been the shit conversations that Cricket Australia had and um, Cricket South Africa have had, at least they've been forced to have them rather than, yeah. you know, being able to turn away. And, you know, the, the whole idea that, I remember there was an article written on one of the blogs saying that cricket was not a very political sport. And it's just like, I'm not sure there's ever been a more political sport than cricket. It's been an incredibly political sport from day one all the way through to now in a way that other sports are just like, like if you, I, I was, I was doing something with an American recently who's writing a book and I was going through all the different sort of divides within cricket. And it was just like, I don't know how you guys even get like two teams to play each other. And I said, well, funnily enough, sometimes we don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How anyone who pretends to have any interest in cricket can say that when you only need to look at how people vote for things on the ICC board to realise how political cricket is. Like it's, yeah, it's absurd. And you know what that basically means is like keep politics out of sport is always like keep the politics I don't like out of sport. That was just what it boils down to. Yeah, pretty much every time. Just how much did you follow the IPL this year? I would assume on a normal basis you wouldn't follow the IPL, but this year was there anything different? Well, I mean. Uh, I do watch it. I, I suppose you, you mean follow in a way that, like, in, in, a, in the context of work. If I, no, I mean, if I called you up a month into the tournament, usually, and I said, geez, well, I was going to say Bangalore are doing bad, but you can take that as a given. <laughs> but, geez, um, Delhi's got an interesting lineup. You'd be able to go yes or no, or you'd go, uh, to be honest, I haven't seen many of their games. That's what I, I think of as following it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think this because of the time of year it was on, I was a bit more like, well, I just want some time off now. I don't, you know. But yeah, no, generally I'd follow it. The one thing I did notice, I did I quite want to see this year was the fact that they're playing out in the UAE and how that's going to affect essentially the team's makeup because you design an IPL team to do well in mm. India and yet you go over to kind of the six-heating haven of the of the UAE. And it's quite interesting that it followed, kind of followed the type of the PSL in that, like, just the, the really, really quick bowlers were, were the difference makers. Yeah. UAE is so interesting. There was a, a young analyst. I can't remember if he was working for a team or trying to get work with a team. And he sent me all this information about the UAE. And I said, look, you, there's one thing that you need to know is I don't think you factored in that the UAE has three different grounds. Like, so sorry, Dubai, Sports City has mm. three different grounds. So there's the main ground, obviously. And then just at the academy, there's two ICC academy crowds. And he was like lumping all this data in. But cricket fans don't even know that. You wouldn't know that. The only reason I know that is because I've been at all three grounds with Scotland, realistically. Even even before then, I had a vague idea of it. And the other thing I was saying to him is they're actually very good at that ground at coming up with the kind of pitches that teams want. So when Pakistan was there, Pakistan got the exact kind of pitches they thought would help them win games. But I don't know if you saw in the ICC qualifiers, the actual pitches were lightning fast and um, the Dutch um, bounced out UAE team for, I don't know, 12 runs or something in a, in a T20 game. Well, they can do whatever they want in Dubai. I mean, they basically, they have made a city out of what should be a sandpit. They can do whatever they want as a play. So it is quite interesting. What, what I found interesting was just that it felt like the first IPL that, I know you didn't watch it specifically, but it felt like the first IPL that, a lot of people around the world watched because it was available to them. It wasn't clashing directly with anything. There hadn't been a burnout of cricket, which they quite, you know, that maybe the English fans and media were slightly different, but it felt around the world that it was a little bit different, which was, it felt like what the IPL should be, which is like almost a standalone moment where we all stop and watch it. And people started to realize just how good IPL cricket was. Whereas I don't think coming in as many 
general cricket fans around the world knew that. You know, if you watch one or two games, you don't see that. Whereas if you watch, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten games, you start to get an idea that this is a phenomenal level of cricket. Yeah, I, I can see that. And I, but I think that's the same. You could say the same thing about all T20 tournaments. It kind of has that feel of, you know, you're a basketball fan that the basketball season is so long that you could legitimately watch 10 games and them all be rubbish. Yeah, that's fair. But if you were able to stick with it, even for like two weeks on a stretch, you'll see some excellent games and you understand why, not only why it's a good product, but why actually the bad games don't matter, that yeah. they're just they're part and parcel of playing as regularly as you do. So maybe, yeah, maybe being able to see it, I suppose in isolation without any of the other distractions, but also having to sit down and flick to it and be like, right, I mean, I, I just have to watch this now. There's nothing else to watch and I like cricket and fundamentally that's what it is from an English point of view I think there's obviously there's still a lot of snobbery behind it as well mm. so you would have got some not even floating voters some people just who want to turn a blind eye to it just you know having to cave in and, and actually give it the time of day but yeah I always think about that with the BBL I feel like I built the BBL up in my head because it's the one tournament that I consistently consistently would watch because of the time it's on, because it's on yeah. in the morning, you switch it on, there's nothing else to do. Because I suppose you've just woken up, you come to it with quite a fresh and open mind anyway. Mm. And yeah, so so that's kind of, I wonder if actually, certainly the conversation over here is that how the BBL is come to be the second best tournament in the world, but it's probably the PSL. Yeah, it's definitely not the BBL. It might have been at the start. These days, CPL and the PSL have very strong claims on, on being the second best league. And the C- and the CPL suffers from the same problem that, that all American sports suffers and that people would say it's too late, yeah. It's the wrong time zone. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I did this. I, the cricketer got me on to talk about it and, I, and they were like, this is the year the CPL's going to break through. And I was like, I don't think it is. I just think it's the wrong time zone. And I know they tried to play more games so they could get into the other markets, but there's no watching habits and people just didn't really come into it. It was, it was very interesting. We've talked about the successful bubble that you were in the outer bubble of. Yes, yeah. <laughs> when you were only a mild vector of disease. Let's go to South Africa for a minute, because, I mean, firstly, you know, what an incredible year for South African cricket. If you want to hear the full story, obviously go back to me and Fado's talking about it. But you basically at this point have uh, their own government coming in and going, you guys can't run cricket correctly. Please stop trying to run cricket. The ICC standing back and going, I really hope someone will tell these guys they're not very good at running cricket. And in the middle of all that, they decided to host one of the more finickety teams, or certainly one of the three most finickety teams in world cricket, to be fair. I would say out of those three teams, India, Australia, and England, England is probably the easiest to deal with. But still, they have a certain standard that they're accustomed to and that they expect. And then you have from, and I heard about this from both sides, really. You know, talking to some of the South African players, they were just like, I don't think the South African players realised how serious coronavirus was until the bubble broke. And they uh, they seemed shocked with me that all this had happened. Whereas the rest of us were a little bit like, you know, on the news, you could have uh, you could have done this. But it was maybe the worst run cricket board in the world at that particular time trying to rub- run a bubble that wasn't an effective bubble because, as you said before, there wasn't a hotel on the ground. Yeah, I mean, that hotel they're staying at, have you, you might have been there. I've been there for a drink. I've never stayed, obviously, I've never stayed there. I'm a freelancer. <laughs> well, yeah, same. Yeah. So I, I've been there for a drink and it's not far from the ground, or rather, it's not far from Newlands. It's about a K, isn't it? You could walk there on a normal, yeah. on a normal day. Yeah. They weren't walking yeah. there. They were getting a bus, but yeah. Yeah. So it kind of, you know, it was as, as, as good as, but 
I mean, yeah, it, it wasn't great. I think the the summer bubbles spoiled England a bit and maybe gave them an unrealistic view of, yeah. of how it should be. And I think you only need to look at, you know, the way games are cancelled in the NBA and in the Premier League football as well to see that, you know, it's it's going to happen. It's an airborne disease. You're, you know, around about and stuff like that. The two places in lockdown the best for me were the NBA because they had the Disney bubble and was probably cricket in England because they had the hotels in the ground. That doesn't exist for all sports. And, that you know, no. the NFL, for instance, you can't have an NFL bubble where you have all the teams. I mean, every team has, what, 10,000 players on it to begin with in the NFL. You know, you just can't have you, you can't have that for every sport. And we did have, as I've made, you know, even the IPL had positive cases, although they obviously handled them a lot better than what happened in South Africa. You could just not report them, can't you? So, Which might have also happened. I mean, one of the things that I heard, and I don't know how much this is true, but one of the things I heard when I was just sort of reporting on all this sort of stuff was that Graham Smith was in charge of the bubble, like because he was he's one of the few senior people left in Cricket South Africa that has a job. And not that he was going out and checking that the canisters were refilled, but that it was his job to sort of oversee how the bubble worked. Now, Steve Elworthy was in charge of the England bubble. Steve Elworthy has been putting together tournaments and events for a very long time. Steve Elworthy may not be the world's best cricket administrator, but he's also obviously very, very good at putting together big events where people are flying in from all around the world. Graham Smith uh, was a very good first slipper, uh, an incredible (laughs) opening batsman, and, you know, he's an impressive frame of a human being. Where in his job description would he ever be ready to oversee, even just to be the guy who goes, who hires someone to do it? Do you know what I mean? To tick it off. We're talking about one of the most professionally run cricket organizations of all time. And we're talking about an organization that basically is trying to sack itself. You've just put, just because you've mentioned Elworthy and Smith there, I'm imagining and praying for one day we're going to be in a situation where. Herschel Gibbs is in charge of putting a bubble together. <laughs> and I, I, I think it should be a fly on the wall documentary. And I think it should, I think it'd do very well on uh, on Amazon and Netflix. Yeah. That's actually a good point. Could we find someone worse than Smith? And maybe they will. Yeah, you know, they'll try. They'll give it a good go. Solly, Solly uh, Kelly. They'll, br- they'll bring Solly Kelly back. And just... <laughs> <laughs> oh, he would be fun. He would be fun if they could do that. But I'm just. Don't want to Satsobi and. Uh, oh, Satsobi would Kelly, be great. Yeah. I forgot about him. He would be an absolutely brilliant one. Or uh, Andre Nell. Andre, what do you, how do you think we should do this bubble? And then uh, it ends up being like something from Animal House. Yeah, Henri Jean is the person in charge and Gunter is the assistant, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it was, it was just never destined to work, was it, realistically? Maybe I'm, you know, in fact, I, I am too soft when it comes to this kind of stuff. But I left the summer and thought, England's done it well. Given the time we're in, you can't have a, a better reason than for global collaboration on all this. And I know, obviously, like some people at the ECB also do a bit of stuff for the IPL, and there's a bit, there's a bit, you know, a bit more back and forth there. Certainly, um, England and Cricket Australia are basically talking every day. And I figured whatever learnings England had from the summer, not least because of Elworthy South African, you know, like how hard it was, just hit him up on the 1999 WhatsApp group. What's, what's the problem here? <laughs> Oh, see, Smith wasn't on that group. That's the problem. That's it. Yeah, (laughs) right. Shit. They should have given it to... Lance Kluzner could have done a decent job. (laughs) I know it feels like Smith has played for 40 years, but he didn't. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I wonder if there would be a bit more collaboration there. And you know what? There might have been, and probably there certainly was. But I mean, is that not a great example, though, of the great inefficiencies and inequalities that are going to exist beyond the game? Like, 
absolutely no way are they going to be happy with whatever, for example, Bangladesh would serve them up. They're not going to be happy yeah. with, you know what, the beaches might save it if they were going to the Caribbean. Like that might be a factor. Um, get them into a resort on a beach. Yeah, I could, I could yeah, see that. Yeah, and like you, you got, even for example, look at the IPL. The way they did it was brilliant. But you know, the was it Delhi, the Delhi Capitals, where they were showing, they had like a behind the scenes clip of what they were doing to a hotel and how they were making it COVID safe. Yeah. And they turned a banquet room, you know, a massive like thousand person banquet room into a gym. Mm. They were able to do it just like that. You know how like The Rock, wherever he travels, he travels with a gym? Yeah. Which employs like 20 people. They have that for every IPL team and they could do that because they've got so much money. Yeah, the, the NBA did all that sort of stuff with, with their bubble as well, didn't they? And you can see the difference too. The NBA did all that incredible stuff with their bubble and I don't know if you follow ice hockey, but ice hockey just had a shit bubble, like a bubble made of shit. It was just like, basically, ice hockey players were basically in the travel lodge in Derby, but not in Derby. Yeah. Well, do you remember the, the, the NBA players kicked off about the food? So they got like an entire catering company in <laughs> so they could they could order and they devised apps so you could order from your phone. Yeah. And your meals dropped off at your door. They probably couldn't afford to do that in Cricket South Africa, sadly. Uh, especially no, because no. they were spending so much money on alcohol on the corporate cards, apparently. <laughs> so they just didn't have the money. But yeah, I mean, it's very sad. Uh, and I, I think you're right. I think uh, what we've learned, I think maybe the, one of the most interesting things that's come out of this year is that the sort of stuff that I've been banging on about for years that no one gives a shit about, the inequality, just sort of came out massively. And, you know, you've mentioned it a bunch of times. But to talk about that, let's talk about when the two kings went up against each other. Because, you know, we've talked a lot about COVID and we're going to finish on something that, that needs to be talked about. But just before we do, how funny was it that a major cricket team got bowled out for 36? I mean, it's just... <laughs> Do you remember when England got rolled by Ireland? Even though Ireland lost that test, I reckon I just walked on air for like three or four days afterwards, just be like, this is spectacular. Well, do you remember England got rolled in the first innings of Headingley? Yeah, just when those sorts of things happen, and it's just like, oh, this is what should happen. This feels great. And to watch India, the might of India, we, they might never get embarrassed like that. Like if, if they manage to work out how to make all those billion dollars into the best talent-making factory of all time, they might never be as bad as they were in Adelaide ever again. I hope that's not the case. I really do hope that's not the case. I hope that major teams continue to be shit in a comical way for the rest of cricket history. But it, the fact that we had that, just there's so much depression and alienation and a terrible year india just gave so much back to society by being bowled out for 36 yeah they were and to twitter as well twitter was loving it wasn't they <laughs> the um what i thought about was you know sometimes you get those games where the bigger team gets rolled as you say and you know that feeling when you go to the press conferences and they're due and they're always <laughs> late and you're like you're almost shaking because like they're going to be bristling. They're going to be so angry. That media manager is going to be such a dick. <laughs> you know, you're waiting for all these things. And like, it happens when India lose. It happens when England lose and Australia lose. But there's that excitement. It's like you're being told off for something else that they did. <laughs> and you feel like you kind of feel in that moment, you know, when it's like a, you have to be silent and you start laughing. You're like, it's that. It's like when one of your parents swears. And as the kid, you go up and go, you've just sworn, but they've actually put a nail through their finger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what it's like. It's that whole thing. If you're right, but they make you feel wrong because they are so furious at what they have done. I know exactly what you mean. It was an absolutely incredible moment and a, a beautiful way. And then the fact that Australia lost the next test when half the Indian team wasn't playing. 
it's almost like then Australia was giving us a gift. If somehow England could give us something, just, you know, in the, in, well, actually, we've got about two hours to go, but uh, in a few hours beforehand, that would be ideal. But one last thing, you talk to a lot of players. Um, I talk to a few players as well from around the world. I'm not sure the players can continue to go on the merry-go-round that they're going on when it comes to player welfare. And it was something that you talked about in your piece. It's not something I've written about, but I've certainly, you know, talking to a few of the players, this is really getting to them, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's something that's always been a problem and it was exacerbated by, I suppose, bubble life. But the schedule that England are about to go on, so on Saturday, the 2nd of January, they're flying to Sri Lanka to play two tests. From Sri Lanka, they travel to India to play another four tests, uh, five T20s and three ODIs. And they come back and they're playing Sri Lanka, India and Pakistan at home. And then you've obviously got their kind of domestic program of cricket, which quite a few of them will be involved with. They go to Pakistan for T20 series. They're playing the World T20 in India, the T20 World Cup in India. Then they've got Ashes. Now, you can talk to me all you want about rotating players, but you're going to need a core of 15 of them for about four of those engagements. Mm. And what we're asking the players is just far too much. And the idea that, like, if we've learned anything this year in 2020, it's that we've got to be more willing to make compromises on the things that that ultimately don't matter. And people matter more than anything else. And the welfare of people, and we work in a sport where mental health is a huge sticking point. And the fact that we've, we're we going to walk into this year without any kind of compromise at all is mm. it's just astounding to me. And, and the other thing about this is we'll get emails from the PCA. We'll do, we'll, there are all sorts of charities, all sorts of initiatives that the ECB want to talk about, about how they look after players post-retirement and about how they're doing more for, for mental health and, you know, ensuring that players aren't just hobbling into retirement. And yet we never see it. We see all the stuff after it. We see all the stuff that raises money for these causes yeah. so that they can help people after that. We never see anything during the season. We never see anything during their careers where, yeah, okay, they get paid very well, but they're not going to go out and buy barnic knees when they finish retiring when they finish playing you know and this is another great example of like how do you not realize this is a problem and it's interesting we you know we started talking about how little cricket's being played by female players and by associate cricketers and we end up in this other situation where we're just asking too much of the ones that do play cricket there's got to be a, a happier medium here to strike and I, you know I, i'm complaining and I, I don't know the solution beyond just like just cut the schedule really I think what's happened is cricket boards haven't just done the one thing that they had to do, which is there's no way we're going to be able to make this up. Yeah. yeah. There's no way we're going to be able to make this up. And I don't know at what level they need to get to when they make that decision, but they are going to burn out a generation of cricketers. They're going to have mental health problems. They're going to have physical health problems. They're going to ruin cricket grounds around the world. Like all sorts of weird things that they haven't even thought about are just going to happen because they can't just go, we need to just hack out a bunch of things out of what's happened. We need to protect the things that really matter, but we need to make sure that every country has a home series to be able to do able to recoup some of these losses. We have to make sure that the uh, the ICC tournaments go ahead. We have to make sure that women's cricket gets back on board. But when it comes to, I mean, Australia, England, West Indies, how long have West Indies been on tour for? West Indies are just finding new bubbles to go into. No, ma- no wonder half of those guys that want to go to Bangladesh. I mean, they don't even get paid a lot of money. There's, there's not like millions of dollars in it for the West Indian cricketers. And they were just from bubble to bubble to bubble to bubble. You cannot do that. Yeah, it's totally unworkable. You know, the fact that it was a big deal, well, not a big deal, but the fact that, you know, it was noted that England paid for their chart flight out to South Africa 
which I think came to half a million. Um, that's the thing about this. Like the West Indies are a great example. I mean, they're just going to be screwed over. Like, let's not lie to ourselves. We're not going to make it up to them in any way, shape or form, <laughs> are we? We're just going to, okay, well, thanks for that. Cheers. We, we did our bit, whatever you need from, from yours, just take it out of the, of the packet we give to everyone else. You know, this isn't going to be made up to them. This in the same way, it's not really going to be made up to Pakistan. Again, with all due respect to the cricketers that will end up going there, but it's going to be a C string team that goes to mm. that T20 tour after the English summer because the schedule really, but I mean, if we're going to go back to what you and Sam and other people have, have written about and have, have been calling for is just a, a more general pot, pot, an equal share. You know, we're not we're not going to get anywhere near that. People are going to chase their losses, and only certain people can afford to chase their losses, and that is, yeah, you know, England, Australia, and India. Well, on that great note, thank you very <laughs> much for coming on to the podcast. I suppose. The, to be fair, it would be disingenuous to us us to finish a twenty twenty review and not kind of shit on everything. Yeah, I was thinking, what what can we lord at this moment? I mean, like, I thought about Bill Cameron Green, but then, I don't know, Sean Marsh scored runs in the BBL, didn't he? <laughs> we could do this in 2014, he'll still be around scoring runs in the BBL. Benny Howe played two IPL games, is that saved by year? Benny Howe played in the IPL? You're an idiot. Did he play in the IPL? Did you really not know that? No, generally, I didn't, no. Yeah. Who did he play for in the IPL? Renegades. You mean the BBL? What do I say? IPL. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, there you go. What a great way to end 2020 with you being run on, uh, on your own podcast. I don't know Heather Knight from Heather Graham from Heather Locklear. <laughs> I struggled with Donovan <laughs> Mitchell and, Do- and Donovan Bailey and Donovan Miller. See, I told you the Donovans get me. The Donovans really get me. And now I don't know the difference between the IPL and the BBL. It's been a long year, man. It has, yeah. We've survived, just about. Obviously, as you just heard from me and Bish, 2020 was a bad year. But let me tell you one really cool story that just happened. Kavim Hodge is a young cricketer from the West Indies who's struggled to get much attention so far in his career, largely because he doesn't just hit everything for six and isn't a natural T20 star. He also reads books. He was actually introduced to me as the cricketer who reads books when I first met him when we were both working with St. Lucia. And while we were there, one night I saw him go downstairs to get milk in the middle of the night to eat the cereal he got from a local supermarket. I just really liked him. We were bus buddies. We would sit next to each other and chat and discuss things. And he just seemed like the sort of person that in any walk of life I would have had a lot of fun talking to. Not to mention at one stage he was on the bus with me and my family and my son stuck his fingers in his ears. A couple of years after that, he got screwed over by some terrible owners in a CPL draft. Luckily, I think he still ended up in the squad that year. Well, the other night, just I think after Christmas, I got a message from him to tell me that he'd been selected to tour Bangladesh for the West Indies team. I, this guy works so hard and smart, and he's never going to be the best cricketer in the world. But he gives you everything he has when he's bowling, when he's batting, when he's fielding. It's a great story. I'm proud to know him, and I'm so proud that he's getting this opportunity. And I don't know if 2021 is going to be better for all of us. But at least in Hodge's case, it started amazingly. Thank you for listening. There are links to works by my guest in the show notes. Please review this show on Apple Podcasts or on any podcasting platform you have access to. This show is made possible by the people who support us on Patreon. So thank you all to those who do. If you want to hear more Red Inker episodes and you have available funds, please help us out on Patreon, which you can find the link also in the show notes. 
Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is the producer, he looks after your ears, and the theme tune is called The Prisoners by the Red Crickets. <laughs>